Well, I want to ask if you could turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. If you've got a Bible at home, um, I'm going to read it out to you if you don't, so uh, don't worry. But we're going to take a little break from Mark. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 12 for a few weeks. And this is just a wonderful, um, really significant passage. Uh, Kind of the the high point of the book of Hebrews, if you ask me, or at least one of the big ones, uh, that just is this wonderful reminder to endure and to keep on running the race. And so I want to read to you uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 to 11. Um, and then we're going to draw out some great encouragements. I've entitled today's message, Endurance Through Pain. Endurance Through Pain. Okay, so Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So where are we then? When we, we, we find ourselves in the book of Hebrews and the context here, the people who the writer is writing to are experiencing a moment of profound pain. This is a small group of uh, Jewish background believers in a large urban centre, think Rome or perhaps Jerusalem. And it's quite clear that they're experiencing some persecution. That's the whole message and, and tone of the letter just keeps on addressing the, the idea of suffering. And particularly, we start to see there is persecution here. Perhaps they're not welcome anymore at the synagogue. They're, they've been ostracised by their community, perhaps uh, rejected by their families for their newfound faith in Christ. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10 even describes how they've um, experienced great plundering of their possessions. They've lost possessions and wealth because of their faith in Christ. I can only imagine that's because they've lost some kind of status and place in their community. In fact, some of them perhaps have even lost their freedom for their faith in Christ. In Hebrews chapter 13, it talks about uh, being with those who are in prison. There's some suggestion that some of the community have even been imprisoned because of their uh, faith in Christ. And so as you can imagine, when you're experiencing that kind of pain, that kind of persecution, you've lost your freedom, you've lost your um, lost your relationships, lost your community. How easy it would be to turn to kind of grumbling and bitterness. And actually, I think that we get lots of hints throughout the letter that that that's what's going on here, that there's there's they're asking questions. They're saying, why is God allowing us 
to experience this. I mean, after our, we've, we've come to faith in Christ, and yet now we experience all this pain and suffering. I say, why does God allow this suffering? Why does he allow this pain? In fact, there's even a suggestion that some are, are giving up. And again, in chapter 10, I think it is, he, it gives a hint that some of them have stopped meeting. They've, they've left. They've, they've said, look, I can't, I can't do this anymore. This is, this is too difficult. This is just too much pain. And they feel like giving up. And yet, what's the writer's response to that moment of pain? He doesn't, doesn't deny they're going through pain, but he doesn't give them permission to withdraw, to run away from the pain. No, in fact, his, his call is a call to endurance, to run the race. Even though, uh, even though it's because of Christ, so to speak, it's in Christ's name that they're being persecuted. Actually, he's saying, keep pursuing Christ. Don't stop running now. Don't withdraw and avoid the pain. Instead, run through the pain. I'm reminded, you, I've not had personal experience of a marathon, but you can kind of imagine, you know when people go on these very long runs and you see that, the moment, you can see the pain some of them go through as they run and they're kind of running through the pain. Maybe you've done some exercise, you kind of get a stitch and it's just agonizing and, you, and yet he's saying, no, don't, don't give up at that moment when you're experiencing the pain. Instead, keep on running with Christ. And actually what you've got to see is this is a very difficult task. They've lost so much. The path of least resistance would be to give up. The very easy thing to do in this situation would be to give up. In fact, to not give up when you're experiencing that kind of pain, is, it's kind of a superhuman ask. We all recoil from pain. Think about if you pick up a pan of boiling water. What's your response? You, you drop it. Because we, we are wired. There's, it's in our physical uh, design that we, run, that we move away from pain. And yet the, the writer of Hebrews is kind of encouraging them to do the exact opposite of that, to, run in, to keep running even though it's painful. And so the question we have to ask when we look at the, com- the command to endure, to keep running the race that we hear in this chapter, is how? How does the writer of Hebrews expect them to endure? And I think the answer is because The way Christians respond to pain and suffering should be very different to the people around us. We should have a very distinctive response to suffering and pain. And actually, I think what the writer of Hebrews here is doing really is giving us some of the grounds for why we are able to respond to pain and suffering so differently. What's fascinating is actually uh, historians record that one of the great uh, advantages that Christianity had in, its, uh, in the kind of explosion of the early church and the Roman Empire, the fact that it was, a cult, it was considered a cult and it faced much opposition, it, was legal, it faced legal opposition, of course some were persecuted even to the point where they lost their lives. How did Christianity grow in spite of such kind of institutional and societal opposition? And actually, um, Historians, philosophers would suggest that actually one of the reasons that Christianity was able to flourish is because it had a much better answer to the problem of suffering and pain. The um, writer Luc Ferry, who wrote a a book, uh, The Brief History of Modern Thought, uh, writes in one of his chapters entitled The Victory of Christianity. And in it, he describes how the Christian approach to suffering um, really was very different to the kind of Roman stoic kind of almost denial of pain or the kind of detachment of pain. No, instead... The Christian answer gave them a solid hope in the face of death, and it gave them the reality of the love of God in suffering. And so in a sense, what we're saying is it should be no surprise that Christians look different because they had a fundamentally different worldview to the people around them. I think the same is true today. When we think about our response to the reality, the everyday reality of suffering and pain, actually, we we need to remember we have just a radically different worldview to everybody else around us. 
Think about what the prevailing secular worldview in our culture says. It says you live in a meaningless universe where there's no overarching meta-narrative, no reason for your existence. And so as a result, if if life has no meaning, no purpose intrinsically in and of itself, then all suffering is senseless. All suffering is random. There's no purpose to suffering. And for more than that, it says there's no God. In fact, if anything, it says there is, uh, as one writer put it, heartless, witless nature that neither cares nor knows. So there's no, there's no hope, there's no purpose in suffering and no, uh, no answer, no God in the midst of that suffering. In fact, the only hope in, from our secular perspective, I think, is to kind of distract yourself, to try and hope that this suffering will pass quickly, which I guess is at best naive, potentially, because anyone who's really suffered knows that you can't just kind of imagine suffering away. That's one side of it. The other option is maybe to kind of hope that technology might somehow overcome suffering. And of course, the reality is we know that we're in a world which is more technologically advanced than ever has been. And yet suffering is all around us. We know that cannot, in the sense that you cannot just kind of hope that technology will save us. And yet, on the other hand, the Christian worldview is very different to that. It says we live in a fallen world. It says suffering is a, a part of the reality of life. It's not naive about suffering. And it says a day is coming when all suffering will be wiped away. Every tear will be wiped away. The broken world that we experience now will be restored. That there will be one day where justice comes about in the world and those who follow Christ will, will live in a world which is restored and uh, no longer experiencing the, the break, brokenness that we do today. And it says everything right now is under the care of a loving father. And so it's a radically different, radically different view. But the great danger, I think, is that Christians would somehow forget the Christian answer to suffering, or maybe even believe it, but still live like everybody else in the way they respond to suffering and pain. And so I want to unpack for you what it means to endure through pain, how to be resilient disciples, not those who, who draw back when it, when it gets difficult, from Christ, who draw back from Christ when it gets difficult, uh, but neither those whose, whose fervor, whose passion, whose, whose love for Christ is, is dimmed in the, uh, in the context of pain and suffering. I think this is really important for two reasons. One is, first of all, we just experience a, uh, we're experiencing a collective moment of pain right now. We, we know that the challenge of lockdown, the, the fact that we can't see our friends, uh, or we, restaurants are closed, or in many ways, much of the, the kind of things that make life rich and satisfying have been taken away from us. And it's very easy to fall into a kind of glumness, a kind of bitterness, uh, or perhaps even a kind of anxiety and fear. A question I would ask you is, uh, what would the people around you say what your mood has been this week? What would your spouse say about how you've uh, acted this week? Or what would your housemates say about your mood? And actually, I think the danger is that we, we may have found ourselves settling into what I think is a kind of unbiblical response to the pain and suffering, the collective moment of pain that we're in. And so I want to show you a better way and show you actually what it looks like to find contentment in the face of pain. The other reason I think we need to look at this is just because suffering is part of the everyday reality of life. One uh, quote from, uh, I think it's the Princess Bride. Uh, one, uh, one of the characters speaks to the, uh, the, uh, the princess, I guess, and says, Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is trying, to tell, is trying to sell you something. We can be so unrealistic to think that pain isn't part of life. Ernst Becker, the Pulitzer Prize winning novelist, uh, said, Taking life seriously means something like this, that whatever man does on this planet has to be done in the lived truth of the terror of creation, of the rumble of panic underneath everything. Otherwise, it is false. He's saying if you want to really 
have a worldview that engages with the reality of life, you need to engage with the reality of suffering to reckon with that reality. So let's answer then, how do we endure through pain and suffering? Well, first of all, the Christian worldview says we recognise the reality of suffering. Christians are not naive about the challenge of pain and suffering in the world. They're not surprised when pain comes. In fact, they're prepared to suffer, but neither do they need to deny pain exists. And you see this throughout the passage which I read. A number of times he uses the encouragement to endure. He said, let us run with endurance the the race that is set before you. Um, Talks about Christ, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Later on, he said, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. And then in verse 7, he says, it is for your discipline that you have to endure. Think about what that word endurance means. Well, endurance, to endure, presupposes pain. You don't endure a walk through the park. You don't endure uh, kind of an, a light, uh, enjoyable activity. No, the word endurance speaks of, of a hard challenge ahead of you, of, of the reality of pain. Think, I, I went to, when I was at school on Wednesday afternoons, my primary school, we, we did cross-country running. And just can I just, can, just picture myself back there in the bleak midwinter running Running for hours, uh, you know, this um, kind of the, the, the pain of a stitch or just have it just the kind of how easy it would be to give up in that moment. And yet that pain, uh, that, that pain that is part of that experience. I think the word endurance requ- implies uh, that it requires patience. It involves the experience of pain. Even the word uh, when he talks about an endure uh, race. Um, endurance uh, run with endurance the race that is set before us that word race in greek is agon it's where we get the word what, what connected with the english word agony he's describing a difficult experience in fact we'd go on and say actually all the way through the book of hebrews and even in this passage we get a a reminder that the christ the pioneer and founder of our faith the one who runs before us in this race has suffered so greatly Think about, um, you know, the book of Mark that we're looking through. We saw how he uh, suffered the rejection of his friends. Think about, see how he, uh, the, the betrayal, when they, when they left him, when he was arrested. Think about, he experienced the agony in the garden as he experienced just a moment of experiencing or looking onto the wrath of God that he would experience on the cross. And of course, even the book of Hebrews describes how he endured the cross. How he will experience both great physical pain and of course he will take on shame and, and the humiliation of that, of that barbarous and humiliating way to die. There's no doubt that we are being reminded that Christ, our pioneer, our founder, as it were, the one who, who blazed a trail. You know when you go on a run and sometimes there's kind of someone at the front of the run who kind of sets the course and go. It's like Christ is the one who set the course for us. He's the one who's right at the front of the race. And so, and look how he suffered. So why would we expect our lives to be different Right Again, twice, actually, really fascinating in the book of Hebrews, uh, the writer is clear about Christ's suffering. He said, For it's fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, he's not saying literally that Christ wasn't perfect before he suffered, but insofar as he experienced that suffering, we see his perfection. Uh, later on, he also describes how uh, Christ was, became fully obedient. He said, um, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Again, we see the full um, 
beauty of Christ's obedience to the Father in the sense to which he was willing to be obedient through such great suffering. And the reason why the the writer is so insistent that we see Christ suffering is that he's saying, look, this is the one who leads us. This is the one who's our model for life. If he suffered like this, why should you expect your experience to be any different? He's preparing them to to suffer. What it says as a Christian, you can't be naive about the reality of suffering, not be surprised about the reality of pain in life. I think we live in a world, many of us from Western contexts, where in many ways we've been closeted away from the everyday suffering of life, the suffering that, would, that anybody living in, in, in history and almost around the world would just take for granted. Uh, think about disease and sickness, the corrupt governments of, of, of a, life, a world living in a world without pain relief. And what this does is it really challenges that, that, um, that anguish cry that many have when we, when we experience profound suffering. When we say, why me? You say, why me? Why, why is God allowing me to go through the suffering? Why do I have to go through this? And I think the assumption behind that kind of response to suffering is actually, well, I thought I could get through life without suffering. In a sense of we kind of have this paradigm in our minds of what life is, and it's a life without suffering. And we're saying, why am I one of the unlucky ones to have to experience suffering? And to which I think the Christian response, the, book of, the writer of the book of Hebrews response would be saying, actually, no, don't you realize that everybody has to suffer? Suffering is just a natural part of life. We live in a fallen world where thistles and thorns grow up, where we're going to experience um, sickness and disease and the ultimately death. And of course, we live in a world ravaged by human evil by sin writ to large in human nature so it means we're not naive but i think this is also a great antidote to self-pity it means now um, when i talk about what self-pity is there's a great danger that you might confuse self-pity for just grieving and sadness you know we, we all experience grieving and sadness in fact uh, christ in the garden of gethsemane is, is 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 experiencing great anguish so there's not a sense to be to be a christian is somehow to be stoic and deny your pain no, but what I think self-pity is when you allow uh, that sad, you kind of en- enter into a kind of wallowing in that sadness. You kind of end up nursing your wounds, uh, chewing over the injustices that have been done to you, uh, you're kind of sulking. Maybe you kind of remember and reflect on just how unfairly you've been treated. And you kind of end up in a kind of perpetual grumbling. And you just kind of start to just look at your own life and just say, oh, woe is me, but in a kind of profound way. You lack any sense of hope and joy. And then I suspect that for some of us, that's where we found ourselves in the past coming uh, previous weeks, where we've just ended up to saying, oh, this is just so sad and just kind of wallowing a little bit. Um, Andrew, my colleague, wrote a wonderful blog blog post on this uh, called The Sin uh, Behind the Sin. You have to Google it. Um, But he talks about how the great challenge of self-pity is that it gives you a permission to indulge the flesh. How you kind of say, oh, well, because I'm going through such suffering, I deserve this. And you end up justifying all sorts of bad decisions because of that self-pity. He quotes from uh, John Piper, who describes... um, a Christian leader and how they might kind of almost allow themselves to go into adultery to give to kind of um, justify that sinful decision uh, because of this kind of self-pity. And he, he kind of describes a moment of self-talk where the guy says, nobody else understands my pressures. Nobody else seems to feel for me in my loneliness the way she does. If any of them knew what I was going through in this leadership role, they would understand why I need this kind of embrace. I need this kind of unconditional acceptance. I've borne the burden enough of the, bur- uh, I've borne enough of the burden of being everybody's spiritual example. I can't take it anymore. I don't care if they don't approve. 
And the, and the great sadness is I read another account, a, a true account of a Christian leader um, recently, and actually that was almost the language that I read to describe what he was doing in, to walking into sin. There's a great danger. Maybe adultery is not a present danger for, for, for most of us, but I, I suspect that, that there are lots of little ways we can use self-pity, use the kind of grumbling of the moment to justify all sorts of sins, whether it be overeating or laziness or, or buying stuff you don't need. Uh, it's so easy to fall into a kind of self-pity and then an indulgence of the flesh. But the great antidote is found in this passage when he says, it's a bit of a challenge really, he says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. He's saying, consider Jesus. Don't you realize how much he suffered? He was the one who, who suffered even death. You will never suffer more than Christ. So don't, don't um, let your suffering kind of end up making you feel that you in some way are kind of a special case and can do what you want. Because look at Jesus. He suffered far more than you ever will as he experienced the great wrath of the Father in the garden and on the cross. He knows suffering. And actually, it's because of his suffering that even with all the suffering you go through, you are rich, rich indeed because of Christ's death and his suffering on your behalf. So you can endure pain without giving yourself permission to indulge the flesh. So first, we recognize the reality of suffering. But second of all, we trust God's purpose in suffering. What I want to suggest to you is that Christians have a fundamentally different approach to suffering because they can see they have a good father who stands above and behind the, uh, their suffering. And actually that they have a confidence that God uses their suffering for their good. That even though they feel pain, and, and that doesn't mean that it's not a painful experience, they also know that good comes from their suffering if they respond in the right way. The, the, the real essence of this passage, and certainly from verse 5 onwards, is this great reminder that your father is at work in your suffering see it's a kind of a gentle rebuke in verse 5 when he says and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons he's saying have you forgotten the great reality and this is what he says my son do not regard lightly the discipline of the lord nor be weary when reproved by him for the lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives it is for discipline you have to endure He's saying, my son, have you forgotten, actually, that the father is disciplining you, is working in you, is shaping you and discipling you and making you holy through this great suffering that you're experiencing? Doesn't mean that it's not painful. See verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful, not denying the pain, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. He says, don't you see that actually your suffering responded rightly actually will bring about a good harvest of righteousness in your life. That actually this has a good purpose, that God wants to work out his uh, purposes in your life through this suffering. Now, this doesn't negate human responsibility for sin. This doesn't um, somehow attach God's hand directly behind evil. Think about the fact that in this very moment, the Hebrews are being, per- these Jewish Christians are being persecuted um, by, by men. That they, they, they will one day stand and have to give account for their, the, uh, before ju- in judgment, so to speak, for the way they have attacked Christ's body here. So this doesn't deny or negate human responsibility or the reality that we live in a fallen world. But it says, actually, even as they intended evil in that persecution, so God will work his good purposes out through that evil. It's the same response that Joseph has to his brothers. He said, what you intended for good, uh, evil, God intended for good. 
Actually, God wants to refine you and shape you. I think this is very much at the micro, not the macro level. It doesn't mean that we, we look at co- uh, coronavirus and say, this is God's uh, X or Y. I don't think it gives us the permission to kind of lo- uh, label saying, uh, this is uh, somehow that we can understand the, the purpose of God at the macro scale and our universes. There's a sense to which all suffering has an element of mystery to it. But it says at the micro level, at the individual level, everything you experience in your life is part of God's plan for discipline and shaping you. That God will use this to help you to grow. Think about, there's a paradox here when we talk about discipline. And we're easy to forget here that it feels painful, but it's good for you. It feels painful, but it's good for you. Think about it's the very opposite of comfort. How, you know, you can uh, kind of spend a whole day on the sofa, under the blanket, watching uh, a box set. And it feels lovely. But actually, you know that if you do that day after day, it deadens your soul. It's unhelpful for you. So it, it feels good. But actually, it's, un- it's unhealthy. It's bad for you. This is the very opposite of that. It says it feels painful. Actually, it's good for you. And that's the great paradox that, um, that God will use the crucible of suffering in your life to refine you, to shape you, to make you more like him. That's why, by the way, the book of James, he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various tri- meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. He's saying, now, most of us find that inconceivable because we've grown up in a comfort world where our comfort is something we we just can't do without, so to speak. So we can't imagine that you could ever have a scenario where you experience a trial and you count it as joy. He's saying, count it as joy. Why? Because this will build steadfastness in you. God wants to do a work in you through this trial. So what does this look like? Well, really, I think it's that God wants to give you endurance through your suffering. Think of the Christian life like a marathon. It will require great tenacity. Many of us are in our 20s and 30s. We're looking at a lifetime ahead, 40, 50 years, maybe longer, depending on how you live, of following Christ. You know, there's a call to, to endure with Christ. And what he's saying is that suffering is like the gymnasium, the, the, the training ground that gives you the endurance and the tenacity to be able to run that race for the rest of your life. At the word in verse 11, uh, he describes when he talks about being trained by it, it's literally g- uh, gymnasio. That he's saying that this suffering is an intense time where you're going to have all sorts of things stripped away from your life. But in, the, in that moment of suffering, you will learn what it means to endure. And that endurance will last you a lifetime. It challenges, by the way, the idea that this lockdown is just one big waste of time. It says, actually, insofar as there is pain in this moment, that this is a difficult moment, actually, that, is your, that pain is your tutor. It's your discipline. It's a, a moment of corrective pain that is for your benefit. That's why in Romans 5, he says, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. Saying as you go through a difficult situation, that will grow endurance in you. What does that mean? It will, it will, as you experience that trial, you will learn that only God is enough. That only God is the one who satisfies. That the other things in your life will be stripped away. And you learn a new sense of dependence on God as you realise that the other things that might have charmed you before actually don't really do it. They're not enough to to power you through this trial. Or, as you go through this trial, you learn a sense of, of actually confidence that with God's presence, with him in your life, actually you can endure through this. And, it, and what it means is you have a confidence to approach the next trial and the next trial because you say, actually, we got through the last lockdown. Many of us, if you'd said to us, you are going to experience six months without uh, you know, all the things that you like and life not back to normal, we said, oh, that would have been impossible. And yet, when we looked at it, we, um, many of us coming out of that first lockdown actually said, this was wonderful for my spiritual life. 
So actually, in a sense, what you've got to do is allow that kind of confidence that, that God was with us and walked through it and talked to us and talked to us and led us and, and refined us and shaped us. And it was for our good. Use that confidence to then drive you into the next trial. Actually, that you have a kind of sense of, of patient, confident patience. You say, actually, God has ta- taken me through up to this point and he will continue to carry me home. He will continue to, um, to, to speak to me and lead me through this trial. And of course, when we have that endurance, when, it, when, that, when the, 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 the suffering produces endurance, it says that endurance produces character and that character hope. As you learn to endure, as you walk through the suffering, actually God, we start to see the real genuineness of your faith. That God sees that this is not just a man who's just kind of coming to God saying, give me, my stu- give me the good stuff and, I'll, and I'll, I'll follow you. No, actually, we see the great reality of your faith, that you have a faith that is willing to walk with Christ even through the darkest times. And then we see a real genuine Christ-like resilience being formed in you, being shown in you by that great heat of this moment of suffering. And as we do that, we, we rejoice because it actually shows us hope because it says we know this man is a real genuine follower of Christ. We can see it. And so we have great eternal hope for him. So the question then is, and actually one, one final thought on that is just, we can't see this because we have lived in a world where we're imbibed a comfort-centric vision of life. We cannot imagine how pain would be good for us. Actually, the rest of the world hasn't always struggled with that. One of the early church fathers, right, right, reading this document, uh, writing a commentary on this, said, no one can point to a person who's become righteous apart from through affliction. We're so kind of nervous and scared about affliction, whereas actually he can say, no one, almost he can't think of one person who hasn't been shaped, any righteous person who hasn't been shaped by affliction. When you, when you see it all around you, you start to see that it has good benefits. Doesn't mean it isn't painful, but it's precisely through that pain that God builds endurance in you. This means don't resist this trial. Don't, uh, it means it's easy to become bitter, to despise the chastisement, the discipline that God gives. A bit like a kind of how a toddler might just kind of have a, a kind of sullen moment of, of rejecting their parents. Say, no, don't despise this discipline. Don't deny that it's happening. Don't deny the pain, how easy it is to try and deny it and distract ourselves. Or even don't let it weary you. You know, the great danger is that you somehow just collapse under the pain of suffering. And actually it says, no, when you know that every, every, that your father stands behind every experience that you have, actually you know he won't test you more than you can bear. So there's no reason ever to give up under the weight of pain and suffering, even though it makes you feel weary, because actually you know that your father stands behind that. So the real question then is, do you trust the father? The question that defines how you respond to suffering is, do you trust the father who knows what you need? See, it's just see all the way through this passage, there are references again and again to the father and son to say this is this is the, the corrective discipline of a father who loves you. This is the action of a loving father. And of course, the great danger is you forget that as a child, you often don't understand the discipline that you receive. There's a great paradox of the heart of parenting. that Even though it hurts, it's good for you. You remember how your mother might have made you have vegetables or, or medicine that you didn't like or all sorts of things which you don't understand at that moment. But your parent, because you trust them, because you know that they're good for you, are you're willing to take that difficult experience. That vaccinate, my wife is vaccinating people as a district nurse, as a practice nurse. Think about how many times children are, are squirming and crying and pain and saying this is going to be horrible. Of course, because of that vaccination, it's going to save their life. So there's, there's a great paradox here that you may not understand this. You may not even see God's purpose in it. And yet that God can work through the pain. And the answer is you, because you have a conviction that you have a loving father 
It talks about here about how uh, there's a pe- these parents did what, what they thought was best for them. Um, f- they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. Saying you, they, they were human parents. They weren't, they, sometimes they're over-disciplined, sometimes they're under-disciplined. They didn't always get it right. But you have a perfect father. And so you can trust him through all pain and suffering. So don't waste your suffering. How easy it would be to mope on the sofa, to distract yourself from the pain of not seeing friends, to give yourself permission to indulge the flesh. Instead, I think I want to ask, get you to ask yourself the question, what does the good father want to teach us, to teach me through this pain? What lesson does he have for me? How is God making me holy through this? I think about the first lockdown, how God really um, broke something of an idol of productivity in me. How I, I longed to be useful and to be productive and have impact. And yet the first lockdown, we were at home. I couldn't meet people individually. I wasn't doing the necessary preaching every week. There's a sense to which you experience a kind of use. I experienced a uselessness, a sense of uselessness. And yet I'm confident that God used that in me to teach me that actually the wonderful blessing of just being a son under the father. And actually you don't always need to be useful all the time to justify your existence. How many good lessons does God want to teach us uh, through the difficult experiences? We want to be strong and achieve great things. Maybe the Father wants to humble you. Maybe the Father wants to keep you in a posture of dependence and weakness. Don't resist this suffering. Don't resent this suffering. Instead, embrace and receive what the Father has for you. So then really what this says, as I bring this to a close, is that Christians are resilient in the face of suffering. What we get a picture of is God's people are unstoppable in the face of suffering. They're willing to endure through trials. They have a rugged Christ-like resilience in the face of great hardships. They're prepared to run the race, to to lay aside everything that hinders. The, The love of comfort, the desire for a nice, easy life. Not necessarily bad things, not sinful things, even not sinful things. To lay them aside in the great race. And to still remain, become even more focused on Christ to the detriment of all those other things that might have charmed you when life was easy. Actually, in light of the suffering, those things, you realise that they're, they're not enough. That Christ alone is the one who will sustain you through all trials that you face. They're, God's people are unstoppable because they remember that every trial is temporary. See in verse 11, he says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful. He suggested this is just a moment Think about how Christ endured the cross um, for the joy that was set before him. We know this to be true in, in life, that suffering rarely lasts for the whole of our lives, a specific trial. But also we know that the great grand narrative of our lives, we will experience trials in this life. We will experience the weakness of flesh, all the different things that come with that of living in a fallen world. But one day Christ is coming back to bring a justice and to restore a broken world and to wipe away every tear. That pain is only temporary. But being seated with Christ in heaven lasts forever. And so it means we never give up. We don't allow the pain of this moment or the pain of, of, uh, that we encounter in life to dim our fervour and our passion for Christ. Quite the opposite. We allow this to be the time which forces us to fix our eyes on Christ again. To, to learn a new sense of dependence. To embrace even the experience of weakness. To know that actually God is going to bring his good work out from any kind of pain and trial. I want to pray for us. I want to pray that this light and momentary affliction of lockdown would be used for God's glory in our lives. That if he, we're experiencing pain Actually, that God would use this to grow endurance in us, to remind us of our weakness and our need for him. That Grace Londoners would be distinctive people, people who 
suffer well, who don't deny pain, but treasure Christ through suffering and learn to run the great endurance race of the Christian faith with a rugged resilience that's never dimmed. Let me pray. And the guys are going to come up and lead us in worship. Lord, we want to be the people who you are calling us to be. People who, are, who, who see your great example, Lord, running before us, willing to endure all kinds of suffering, Lord. We want to be a people who are ruggedly resilient in the face of suffering, who are willing to persevere through all trials because we know that we have a loving Father who's in control of our lives and who is good and can be trusted. And we just trust you, Lord, now in whatever circumstance we find ourselves, whether we're in joy or or not, Lord, that we would uh, know that you are good, that we know that we can continue to run the race, that we don't want to be distracted, we don't want to allow anything else to, to pull us away from you, Lord. We want to pursue you wholeheartedly. So, Lord, would you come now, give us your spirit, Lord, to help us to become the people of God who are eager to do what is good, eager to run the race wholeheartedly, and whose eyes are fixed on you, the great pioneer and founder of our faith, the great one who conquered suffering and conquered death and is bringing an end to suffering and will bring an end to death. We praise you, Lord Jesus, and we worship you now, Lord. We praise you. Amen.